Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I walk a straight line, shackled and chained. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. Thank you all for listening and liking and sharing. Please continue to do so. Leave leave us a review wherever you listen up in your podcast. And Patreon members, we appreciate y'all. You rock. Thank you for your continued support. This one, we're going back to one that got a whole lot of interest. In People it. loved it. And, well, I love it. Yeah. And, uh, I guess you're twisted to your arm, right? And the, we're going to tell you about death chamber. Death chamber stuff. Yeah, and part execu- two. Execution. Yeah, death, death chamber part part two. Part two. Yeah, so we're going to get into it and, and what we do with these folks. And if you hadn't listened yet, you can go back and listen to death chamber part one. The good thing about these 
is uh, we cover just individual uh, convicts that were executed at Angola. We tell just a little synopsis of their crime, and they got some really interesting final words in there for these guys and and things like that. And uh, people just loved it the first time, so we're going to continue with it. And I'll start out with our first convict up for, I guess, grabs today, and that is Leslie Lowenfield. And Leslie Lowenfield was executed in 1988, and he rode mm-hmm. the lightning, elect- yeah, I graduated electrocuted, yep. gruesome Gertie. Gruesome Gertie. Had a seat in that chair. And uh, to tell you a little bit about this, uh, this guy, he was a native of Ghana. He came to Louisiana from Canada in 1981, and he met his primary victim, which was a lady named Sheila Thomas. He's, now He's well-traveled. I think Ghana's like in Africa or somewhere. Yeah, and then he, he goes, goes to, to Canada. Canada. And then he comes to south or to Louisiana. And he figured it out. He figured out the USA was where he wanted right, to be, right. I guess. And we didn't yeah. want him here after. after yeah. Uh Sheila Thomas was his primary victim. She was a deputy sheriff in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, AP, yeah. which is around the New Orleans area. Yeah, it's a huge. Actually, it's one of the largest parishes geographically because it expands all the way around Orleans, all the way down to Grand Isle. Did you know Grand Isle was in Jefferson Parish? I did not. Absolutely. It cuts across all that marsh and everything else. Uh, so land-wise, Tangipo is the longest parish in the state. North and South, but I think JP is the biggest. Interesting. I didn't know Tangy was the yeah, longest. Tangy is the longest state north of South. Yeah, I'll be I mean here. longest parish north of South. Very interesting. So uh, Sheila Thomas was a deputy sheriff, and uh, Miss Thomas, along with her daughter, young daughter, who was Chantel Osborne, moved in with Lowenfield in the summer of 1981. So you can already see. Uh oh. Uh, Lowenfield and Miss Thomas, they lived together off and on for about a year. During that year, Miss Thomas left Lowenfield on three separate occasions and returned to live with her mother. So they're probably fighting, having arguments. Yeah. Uh, Lowenfield became increasingly bitter following each separation. So every time she would leave, he would get more and more pissed. Right. When Miss Thomas returned to her mother's home for the last time, he repeatedly threatened and harassed Miss Thomas and her mother, uh, victim Myrtle Griffin. In the late afternoon of August 30th, 1982, Owen Griffin, Sheila Thomas's stepfather, was in a vacant lot near his home in Marrero, which is outside Marrero, of New Orleans, right. uh, like an outskirts of uh, New Orleans. Yeah. He was playing cards with friends. Owen Griffin, all of a sudden, he hears shots ring out from their home. He runs to the house, rushed inside where more shots were fired. When police arrived, they found five bodies sprawled about the living room area of the house. They found the bodies of Sheila Thomas, her four-year-old daughter, Chantel, Owen Griffin, his wife, Myrtle Griffin, and Carl Osborne, who was the father of Chantel. All of the victims had sustained multiple gunshot wounds. Each had been shot in the head at close range. That's crazy. But think about that last seconds when you're sitting there and whatever pops off and he shoots the first one. You're like, what the? And then boom, 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 boom. Just blast. You're sitting there. You mean, I'm sure someone was trying to scramble and get away. But he's close enough to shoot him in the head. No doubt about it. No mercy animal. No mercy and total animal. And he goes to court, gets convicted, gets sentenced to death. 
And eventually, as a matter of fact, in 1988, he does get executed. And his final statement included remarks directed at his two attorneys, Wayne Walker and John Kraft, who had worked on his trial and appeal. His last words were, I hope you feel satisfied. Don't give up on me, although my life will be over tonight because the one responsible is out there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Deny it to the end, right? There is no reason to hold anything against me and the rest who would lie. When I'm gone, the body will be gone, but the spirit will live on. Mr. Walker and John Kraft, your job was more important than my life. I hope you feel satisfied. Thank you to all of you, and peace. Did he say peace? He said peace. Yeah. That was oh, his yeah. final peace, words. Peace, How right, dare him right, use right our... Right to hell, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Use our moniker. But here's an interesting... Yeah thing about this entire case dale brown the head basketball coach at that time actually attended his execution i didn't know that they had been corresponding since dale brown toured angola years earlier with the lsu basketball team actually became friends and and uh he he attended that execution i found that very crazy the uh so that was you know the real deal execution yeah, gruesome Gertie. I got to sit in probably around that same time, and the chair would not obviously get executed. But think about the <laughs> difference between what they do now, what they just put him to sleep. Yeah. And the gruesome Gertie, yeah, oh, yeah. they strap you in, and you know you about to ride. Yeah, lights. And, lights, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. off, on. Uh, they don't <laughs> just hit him once. They did it like three, four, five yep. times. And so. Fuck him, and he got what he deserved. Yeah, and it's don't use our peace anymore. Yeah, no, don't use our <laughs> peace. Tell the devil peace, you bitch. That's right. All right, I'm going to take you to a guy named Timothy Baldwin. Mm. And the date of the murder was April the 4th, 1978, and he killed a lady named Mary James Peters. Now, what's unusual about this? Killing one person and getting a death penalty? Well, Mary James Peters was 85 years old. That's bad, right? Yeah. But Elderly. she was blind. Oh, my God. Right? And That's horrible. He beat her to death with a skillet, a stool, a small television, and a telephone. Right? And this happened in, in God, like, you know, you would think me being retired from state police, I would have all these pronunciations correctly, but I'm going to say this one wrong because every time I say it, somebody corrects me. But it, I, I say Wichita, Wichita Parish, Louisiana, which is y'all is all the way up north, east um, in Louisiana, great fishing and hunting. And he was electrocuted in Louisiana on September 10th, 1984. Now, let me tell you about the case. Timothy Baldwin and his wife Rita and their seven children were neighbors of Mary James Peters in West Monroe, Louisiana. Again, y'all, that's way north east Louisiana. From 1971, uh, he was roommates with him in 1971 to 1977. Miss Peters was godmother mother to their youngest, Russell. During the later part of their stay in West Monroe, William Odell Jones also resided with the Baldwins. Okay, the group went to the Bozier, went to Bozier City for six months. And now, y'all, Bozier City's on the other end of the north part of the state by Shreveport. All right, so probably about a three-hour drive. The group, the group went to Bozier City for six months and then moved to Ohio. 
The oldest daughter, Michelle, remained in West Monroe with one brother. A second son entered the service, and Marilyn Hampton and her three daughters stayed with the Baldwins in Ohio. Marilyn, Timothy Baldwin, and her children then left, accompanied by Jones. Baldwin and Jones worked together in the business of installing aluminum siding. After the departure of her husband, Rita Baldwin got into financial difficulties and was picked up on bad check charges. Her four younger children went to live with Michelle in West Monroe. Meanwhile, Timothy Baldwin, our bad guy, Jones, Marilyn Hampton, and her three children led an uh, internet in existence. Their last means of transportation was a 1978 black Ford van, which had been rented in Tampa, Florida. Mm-hmm. On April 4th, 1978, Marilyn Hampton and Timothy Baldwin drove the van to West Monroe. Jones and the children stayed at a cabin in the home state park near Jackson, Mississippi. Baldwin, yeah, Jackson, Mississippi is not that far. Um, Wichita, however you want to say it, and and in the Monroe is pretty much on the Mississippi, um, Mississippi, Louisiana, and just north of that is the Arkansas line. So about, about an hour from there to to uh, Jackson. So. Baldwin and Marilyn Hampton visited Michelle's apartment in West Monroe, but left there at 8 p.m. Shortly thereafter, a van was seen parked in front of Miss Peters' uh, house. A man and a woman were observed leaving the residence between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock p.m. Shortly before their departure, a passerby, a passerby saw and heard indications that someone in Peters' home was being beaten. Baldwin testified in his own behalf and admitted that he and Marilyn visited Miss Peters that evening but denied the murder. Miss Peters, who was 85 years old, was beaten with various things, among them a skillet, a stool, and a telephone. Oh, my God. And this is a blind one. Right, right, right. She doesn't even know right. it's coming at her. Right. Yeah, that's Poor hard. That's thing. unimaginable, right? Poor lady. Uh, uh, I think about the one I had Miss the Nooney had the 57 blows. It was from a base and a Coke bottle, but she was on a walker and stuff, but at least she could see it coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's awful. Um, anyway, she remained on the kitchen floor overnight and was discovered the next morning, shortly before noon by an employee of the Wichita council meals on wheels who were bringing her, her noon meal. Yeah. Although helpless and incoherent, Miss Peters tried to defend herself against the police officers and the ambulance attendant who took her to the hospital. Poor woman, man. Um, Dr. A.B. She doesn't know who they are. Dr. A.B. Gregory saw her in the emergency room around 12.30 p.m. on April 5th, 1978 and found her in a semi uh, comatose. Her left cheekbone and jawbone were shattered. She had brain damage from multiple contusions and lacerations. According to Dr. Gregory, Ms. Peters could not communicate rationally. She died of the injuries the following day. Dr. Frank Chin, who performed the autopsy, attributed her death to massive cerebral hemorrhage and swelling secondary to external head injuries. So she bled, brain bleeds what ultimately killed her, and it didn't kill her instantly. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. Living, there on the, on, living there, laying there on the floor all night. Timothy Baldwin and Marilyn Hampton were subsequently located in Eldorado, Arkansas. Remember, y'all, I told you Arkansas is just north. Timothy Baldwin signed consents for search of the motel room and the van. Two blue bank bags, one empty and one containing savings bonds and certificates of deposits payable to Mary James were found Mm. in the van. Um, Jones, to whom Marilyn Hampton and Timothy Baldwin had made 
statements both before and after the crime helped police officers locate a safe that had belonged to the victim in the Lafouche Canal in West Monroe. Baldwin's fingerprints and palm prints were found on various items in Peter's home, a cigarette lighter, a television set, and a coffee cup. Baldwin was found guilty, and the jury did what they should have. They recommended the death sentence. So, Timothy George Baldwin was executed on September the 10th, 1984. Baldwin was, was convicted of beating to death the 85-year-old blind woman, Mary Jane Peters. And Peters, who was a former neighbor of Baldwin's and the godmother of his youngest child, was beaten with everything I told you all about. Baldwin maintained the sentence and gave this final statement. He said, I've always tried to be a good sport when I've lost something, and I see no reason not to leave this world with the same policy. After all, it was a hell of a battle. I I therefore congratulate all those who have tried so hard to murder me. I definitely have to give them credit as it takes a very special kind of person to murder an innocent man and still be able to live with themselves. You know, city, huh? Burning in hell. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you something. Hell of jail, as you say. Hell of jail. (laughs) But, you know, you go through all these years. He probably, he sat on death row for a a lot shorter time than they do now. Yeah. And you know, they're, you're strapped down and that's going to be your last words. I'm thinking about trying to find me some Jesus. Amen. And even if I don't believe him, I'm be like, uh, Lord, if you could please forgive me if you're really there and, and bring me home. But he's saying, mm, I didn't do it. What a horrible wow. human. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're getting real on this one. Right. Look, these guys, they were executed. So you're going to hear executed some some disturbing reason. stuff. Yeah. But it's we're, we're real with this stuff. Executed so. for a reason. That's right. Yeah. I'm going to tell you about Sterling Ralt. And Sterling Ralt was executed, y'all, by electrocution, gruesome Gertie, in 1987, August 24th to be exact. Uh, and this is an interesting case because uh, a lot of these guys that end up on death row and executed, you know, they were they come from really hard upbringings, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them didn't have money their whole lives, and. Right. Sterling Ralt was a little bit different. He had a good job. He was a controller at a company called Lutex. And there was a lady there named Janie Fransoni. And Mike, if he were here, could help me pronounce that Italian last name. But we're going to go with Fransoni. Uh, She worked as a secretary. On the evening of March 1st, 1982, which was a Monday, fellow employees observed Ralt and Fransoni leaving work together in her car. Less than an hour later, three UNO students, which is University of New Orleans, inside of New Orleans, they saw the two struggling in the campus parking lot. Fransoni uh, screamed at the students, asked them to call police and make him leave her alone because he was attempting rape. The students closest to the car observed what appeared to be splashes of blood on her clothing. Ralt repeatedly said he had to get her to the hospital before throwing her in the car from the driver's side all the way to the passenger side and driving away. Other witnesses, yeah, got to get her to the hospital. Basically, grabbed her, threw her, and threw her so hard into the car she went straight into the passenger seat. So he was a probably a strong guy. Right. Um, Approximately nine twenty that evening, a state trooper driving north on Paris Road in an isolated area of New Orleans East stopped to investigate what appeared to be a brush fire and discovered a burning female uh, body. Worst way. 
close by were partially uh, used five-gallon cans of gasoline and Fransoni's blood-stained car, which smelled strongly of gasoline. So he's right. trying to burn the yeah. car and her. A spent bullet was even found on the floor of the car. Mm. The victim had a man's belt wrapped around her neck and a jagged wound on the right side of her neck. She had been shot twice. One bullet had struck her in the thigh, traveling into the abdomen through a small intestine, stomach, and liver before exiting the left side of her chest. The pathologist actually testified that this would have caused extensive slow bleeding. Right. The wound would have been very painful and would have resulted in death in less than a matter of hours. The second bullet entered directly into the abdomen. It damaged blood vessels on the right kidney and a large blood vessel known as the interior vena cava before lodging into the spine and would have also caused really rapid bleeding. Uh, that that wound would have been fatal in five or ten minutes. So what, what we're painting a picture of here is how, you know, she suffered. It wasn't right. just... It's just horrible. The victim was dead. Twice, yeah. Yeah. The the victim uh, was dead when the neck wound was inflicted and she was set on fire. Thank God. Her fingernail scrapings have human blood on them. So she fought. Right. She's a fighter. Janie Fransoni had been with her mother and a friend during the preceding weekend and had no sexual encounters. I'm sure they tested for that. Her mother took her to work. On Monday morning, however, she had engaged in sexual activity 12 to 24 hours prior to her death. Vaginal swab showed semen fluid, but no sperm. Uh, Sterling Ralt had a vasectomy in 1979. When police searched the area, they detected movement under a nearby bridge. As they approached, a man broke out and ran. After a brief chase, he turned around, threw up his hands, and hollered, I'm Sterling Ralt. Ran like a bitch. Yeah. He appeared quiet, calm, and relaxed. He was dressed in casual clothing. He was lacking a belt. Mm -hmm. Uh, Woody's detective brain can put two and two together on that one. And he had a strong aroma of gasoline. So, uh, you know, there were several fresh red scratch marks across his chest. His right hand was swollen. After being advised of his rights, he claimed two men in ski masks kidnapped him and Fransoni and raped her, of course. Uh, Testimony at the trial revealed Rawl had been embezzling funds from Lutex, and his secretary was about to basically write him out. Uh, So in December of 1981, a 25 caliber semi-automatic weapon had been sold uh, to a buyer with a driver's license in the name of Jerry Jones. In executing the search of Rawl's Residents, they recovered a gun box for the pistol, a box of 25 caliber cartridges, a Mississippi driver's license in the name of Jerry, Jerry Jones. Jones. So there it is. They they end up uh, taking him to court, obviously, and he gets the death penalty. Uh, so he got executed on August 24th, 1987. He was convicted of raping, stabbing, shooting, and burning the body of Jane Ellen Fransoni, a 21-year-old secretary, as we told you. And his final statement was, I would like the public to know that they are killing an innocent man at this oh, time. God, yeah. Three for three. Oh, innocent, huh? Crazy. I pray that God will forgive all those involved. How nice of yeah, you. Right. I personally do not hold any animosity towards anyone. Yeah, right. The country pro- professes to be one nation under God, but the death penalty goes against the word of God uh, into the arms so of. So does murder and shooting a lady twice and 
choking her, you know, with the belt and everything else. Yeah. Into the arms of God, I go now. I love you all. May God bless you all. And there was a little write up in the, in the, uh, paper, you know, shortly after these, uh, and it was interesting because he was fighting to try to get these stays of execution as are typical, right. uh, but unsuccessful. And he read yeah. the, the lightning as he deserved. I'm so glad Grissom Gardy was still involved in all these stories. You know, yeah. I just think that's such a uh, good way for them to go. And I know so many people hate the death penalty, and I don't want anybody that's innocent, but – these people you hear some of these oh, stories man. and and it, you know it, what it's, a, it's like having a migraine everybody knows about someone not someone ever about murder but unless you're going through it unless it's your loved one the you know i've seen people who said before their family members got murdered they were against the death penalty and after their family members got murdered they wanted the death penalty yeah you, know, you, you understand it but you don't get it right? that's right well Let's take to our next winner, Antonio James. And y'all, he's a murderer uh, during some robberies, and he killed two people um, in January the of twenty uh, third of nineteen seventy nine, and was arrested on the twenty sixth of nineteen seventy nine. He was, but he was born in fifty four. So he was, was that sixty four, seventy four. So he was like twenty four, twenty five, and. This happened in Orleans Parish, uh, um, and he actually, this winter, got lethal injection instead of gruesome Gertie. Got so the needle. Me, all right, got the needle. Let me tell you about it. So James um, had amassed a very extensive juvenile and criminal record by the time he was tried for the murder of, and we'll get, uh, he, he murdered two people, y'all, Henry Silver, age 70, and Alan Adams. I don't know what Adams' age was. But James had amassed a very extensive juvenile criminal record by the time he was tried for the murder of Silver. The post-sentence investigation report, let me tell you about that. Did you know that anytime you get convicted of any crime, especially you're going to do a lot of time, there's actually a division of, of, of the parole officers and, and probation officers who do what they call a PSI, pre-sentence mm-hmm. investigation report on you, and they tell you, they, your whole prior criminal history, not a, not a work history and everything else, drug use, whatever, and then the they write a synopsis on whether that uh, to tell the judge whether or not they're likely to offend again. Yeah. So that helps the judge determine how many years or whatever they're going to give unless it's, I le- unless it's automatic life in prison. The post-sentence investigation report prepared for the sentencing court listed 37 Juvenile incidents, thirty-seven. That's the ones that they called him for, bro. That's the ones that they called him for. Think yeah. about all the ones he got away with. Probably and, double it, right? James was ordered confined to Louisiana Training Institute at age fourteen. And y'all, that is basically the Angola. Or we need to call LTI. LTI. <laughs> that was right. That was right down the road from me. Mm-hmm. We need. We're gonna actually cover that one day because that's some real shit there too. But most of these guys, we going a lot of them go to, uh, to death row. But anyway, he was he was locked up in basically juvenile prison, uh, which was a very bad place at, at age fourteen. In 1973, he was convicted of attempted armed robbery and sentenced to serve three years at state penitentiary. During this period of confinement, he was convicted of attempted simple escape. 
He was released in 1975. I don't understand all these years because, I mean, armed robbery carries 99, attempted, I think, is 40, up to. And then the, the, the simple escape alone is 10 years. But anyway, he was released in 1975. In 1978, he was charged with aggravated rape. That's a mandatory life, if not death penalty. But the charge was later refused by the prosecution. James was convicted of the first-degree murder of Alvin Adams on January 23rd of 79 and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Okay, the first-degree murder, he could have got the death penalty. He was convicted of January on January 26th of 79, so just, shit, three days later? Uh, Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Armed robbery of Robert Hooten and was sentenced to 99 years for this offense, the maximum under Louisiana law. Mm. Now, we go to Henry Silver. On January 1, 1979, James approached 70-year-old Henry Silver as the latter was getting out of his car in his neighborhood in New Orleans. James placed a gun to Silver's head and demanded his money. When Silver shouted for help, James placed a gun under Silver's right ear, cocked the hammer, and fired a shot into Silver's head. James then rifled through Silver's pockets and removed his wallet containing 35 bucks. He drove away in a nearby waiting car. Silver died a few hours later at Charity Hospital. Now, let me tell you all this. And I used to go there all the time. Back in the day, it's closed now after Katrina. But Charity Hospital was rated as the number one trauma center in the world for gunshots and stabs. Yeah. You know why? Because it handled all New Orleans shit. And in the 90s, New Orleans was the murder capital of the world. Yeah. So I've seen some crazy shit in there. Um, but anyway, he obviously lived for uh, on the machine for overnight. James was arrested on January 26, 1979, when he bungled another armed robbery attempt and was shot with his own gun. He was indicted for the first-degree murder. At trial um, by Orleans Parish Grand Jury, the, the Orleans Parish Grand Jury indicted him for first-degree murder. In December 1981, the jury found him guilty as charged at a trial where the principal witness against James was his accomplice, accomplice Le- Levon Price. After deliberation, the same jury 
unanimously recommended that the defendant be sentenced to death, rightfully so. Yeah. So let's go to March 1st, 1996, all these years later. That's 15 years later. Um, James was executed by lethal injection at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Our listeners know it as Bloody Angola at the age of 42. The execution team had difficulty locating a vein to insert the catheter into his arm in order to commence execution. Our hero, Warden Beryl Kane, requ- requested that James make a fist in order to assist the process. James complied to this request. James declined to give a final statement. However, when Morgan Kane later said that James stated, bless you, as he was strapped to the execution gurney. His last meal, fried oysters and crab gumbo. Wow. Good right? choice. Good choice. <laughs> I say that. that. Made me hungry. Yeah, thanks. James' execution was the subject of an ABC News documentary on primetime live in the UK. The BBC broadcast a 40-minute piece on April uh, 18th, 1996, on Radio 4 about the case, with particular reference to the role of the British lawyer Clive Stafford Smith from providing adequate defense. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. and Antonio James, we talked, we talked about, about him a little bit him, yeah. on our, which if you look, yeah, go, go back and listen to that, that series. series, the Burrow Kane uh, series, we just part, wrapped four, up. Three or four parts. Well, it was three parts. Three parts and then me and Cajun, so it's four parts. Yeah, so the patron, we did an episode mm. with Kelly Jennings. That's right. And uh, only available to patron. We're so good. Join that patron right, and right, listen to right. that one. But we discussed Antonio James, and it was interesting. That was the uh, second execution That's for Burrow Kane, yeah. and the one that he said, I'm going to do this one right. Right, because his first so, one. Yeah, y'all, y'all go listen to the series. It's really super, good. Super powerful. Burrow, we're still waiting on you to um, come on the show, buddy. And you know what I notice about that whole thing? Yes, we are. What I notice about that whole thing is he's the first one we've come across today that didn't blame it. Other people. Yeah, that's right. The first one they didn't. He say, just said, "God bless," and, yeah, and God I'm bless. I'm riding out. Yep. in the uh, at least took it story. like a man. Yep. That's right. So John Ashley Brown. Let's get to him. And John Ashley Brown was executed by lethal injection in April of 1997. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about this crime. On the night of the murder, Mister Laughlin. And his wife had eaten dinner at a restaurant near the corner of Dolphine and Torres Streets in New Orleans. Very famous area of New Orleans. At approximately 11.45 p.m., they left the restaurant and began walking to their car, which was located about a block away. Brown exited a nearby vehicle, and he confronted the Laughlins. He pinned them against the car and demanded money from Mr. Laughlin. Miss Laughlin screamed and ran back towards the restaurant. When she returned to the scene, her husband was dead. According to NOPD, who had arrived at the location, the victim was found lying face down in the street and bleeding profusely. Mm. An autopsy later revealed that Mr. Laughlin had been stabbed 13 times. A lot. Miss Laughlin provided the police with a description of the perpetrator and the vehicle uh, which she had seen him get out of prior to the attack. She also told police that a woman with dark hair had been driving. So, Sergeant James Scott of the NOPD was stopped at a traffic light when he heard the description of the crime and saw the suspect being broadcast over the radio. He looked to his left, and there's Brown sitting in a vehicle that matched the description 
given by the victim's wife, and there was a female at the wheel of the car. Brown pulled the vehicle. Uh, Brown's vehicle was pulled into a nearby service station, and Sergeant Scott followed, believing the occupants of the car might be the suspects. The officer watched as a woman put gasoline in the car while Brown walked over to a water hose, and he began washing his hands. He then, he then re-entered the car. Good point. Sergeant Scott approached the vehicle and ordered Brown to step out and place his hands on the hood. When Brown did so, the police officer observed scratches, marks, and droplets of blood on his yeah. forearms. He also observed blood between Brown's toes, which were visible through the sandals he was wearing. In plain view on the floor of the car uh, was a New Orleans shopper's car, which belonged to the victim. Wow, right. you, evidence is mounting yeah. up, right? right. Uh, he was arrested, taken into custody in a search. Uh, yielded Mr. Laughlin's wallet. A second search prior uh, pursuant to property secured warrant led to the discovery of a Bowie knife, which had been concealed under the front seat of the car on the passenger side. Miss Laughlin positively identified Brown in a lineup and, you know, basically nailed that right. this is the guy that attacked yeah, my for, husband. For those of you who don't know, a Bowie knife is a big ass knife. Yeah. 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 So obviously he goes to court he gets convicted. He gets sentenced to death. And on April 24th, 1997, he was put to death by lethal injection at Bloody Angola. His final words were, let my baby sister know I love her and the rest of my family for supporting me. I love you very much. I'm ready to go now. As he felt the lethal drugs enter his system, Brown stated, wow. Really? That's it. Wow, that's crazy. Pretty crazy stuff. And yeah. th- those final words, man. Yeah. But, sh- you know, I guess credit sh- to the guy yeah, for not denying it. Yeah, and not saying you got me bad. And yeah. Go find the real murderer and all that shit, right? Yep. And he said, wow. Wow, when he felt Hopefully that stuff. Hopefully he saw the face of Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Could, uh, could be. The, all right. So, now, y'all, we'll take you to our next, whatever you want to call him. Um, his name is Willie Watson, and he's a murderer. And, and not only is he a murderer, he's a rapist and a kidnapper and a robber. Um, and this offense took place on April 5th, 1981, and Willie Watson was born. I'm sorry, 1981, and Willie Watson was born in 51. So, And he killed a lady. Kathy Newman, who was 25 years old, who was a Tulane University medical student. If you don't know that, if you're not from Louisiana, Tulane is basically the Harvard of the South. And he did so by shooting her in St. Charles Parish. All right. So on the evening of April 5th, 1981, Willie Watson abducted Kathy Newman, a third-year Tulane University medical student, at gunpoint as she arrived at her apartment building in the Carrollton section in New Orleans. Very familiar with that. The, um, Watson forced Newman to drive to an isolated area in St. Charles Parish, which would be um, towards La Plaza. He drove her across the bridge, anyway, where he robbed her of her jewelry and raped and sodomized her. Mm. Right? Winner. Watson then instructed Newman to dress herself and as she did so, he shot her in the back of the head, killing wow. her, right? Uh, Watson later confessed to the murder, stating he shot Newman because he feared that she could identify him. On June 5th, 1981, 
Watson was found guilty of first-degree murder. And Willie Watson was executed on July 24th of 1987. Watson was convicted of the kidnapping, rape, and murder, like we told you, of Kathy Newman. Um, And when they asked if he had any last words, Watson calmly shook his head, no. Mm. Let let me read you the article. This article is from the um, New York Times. It's right up after execution. Says Willie Watson uh, dates June, July 25th, 1987, New York Times. Willie Watson went calmly and silently to his death in an electric chair, gruesome Gertie. Early, they didn't say that, y'all, was me. <laughs> Early today for the rape, robbery, and murder of the Tulane University medical student. He was the sixth murderer executed in Louisiana since early June and the second this week. I, I remember wow, they're they they making it happen back in them back days. Then, yeah. He was. Uh, the student, Kathy Newman, 25 years old, was abducted, raped, and shot. Now, not just raped, y'all, sodomized also, um, and shot to death in 1981. Mr. Watson, 30, confessed that he killed her, attributing the crime to his drug addiction while an adolescent growing up in New Orleans housing projects. And look, back then, they were real legit yeah. projects. Did I ever tell you about that? You could go, like— you could be on where Mike's house is on St. Charles and go two blocks in any direction, and they had the project projects, yeah. the big high-rises and shit. They had their own uh, New Orleans police authorities for it. It was so bad, they wow. wouldn't go in there in the daytime unless they had, like, three units at a time. Wow. But anyway, uh, this is a desire. And, so he grew uh, up uh, rough. It was rough. It was That was a rough shit, the, the concrete jungle. So... Um, The execution, which had been scheduled for midnight, was delayed two hours after the U.S. Supreme Court rejected Mr. Watson's appeal on a 4-4 tie vote. Mr. Watson's lawyers made a last-minute plea to Governor Edwin W. Edwards, my boy, in Baton Rouge, um, and refused the final statement. At 1.58 a.m., Mr. Watson walked into the death chamber. His head had been shaved of the shoulder-wide afro because he had a big fro, y'all. Hairstyle he had the day before when he appeared at the state pardon board in a futile appeal. Asked if he wanted to make a final statement, Mr. Watson shook his head, no. He was then strapped into the wooden electric chair before his face was masked. And y'all, they do that because the eyes fry out of the head and the hair, well, the scalp will catch on fire. Um, Before his face was masked, he looked at his spiritual advisor, Sister Lee Scardina, and mouth. I love you, Sister Lee. Then he received the first of four jolts. Remember I told you earlier, they hit it. Yep. They go, hit it. <laughs> Turn it off, and they did hit it four, four times, times, right? Anyway, uh, so then he received the first of four jolts of electricity at 2.02 a.m. He was pronounced dead at 2.09. After it was over, the spiritual advisor went to the jet stone. Mr. Watson's lawyer who was outside the death chamber and cried on his shoulder. Outside the prison, six advocates of the death penalty marched in the darkness. Now, I remember back in those days, the uh, I mean, that basically is the, the neighboring parish to where I grew up. And, shit, I remember that they, they, would, they were rolling them through. And, yeah. and, and, and um, Governor Edwards was in office. My mom was on the parole board, the parole and pardon board. And, and anyway, he was good friends with my dad. Wow, and that was like six minutes they were jumping. Yeah, yeah. well, so you get, and they give them for like a minute, turn it off, <laughs> give them another minute, and then I mean, I'm, uh, 
not hey. being morbid, but you know, fuck him. He, yeah. He, and he it's a killed a 25 year old that was going to be a do doctor. He yeah. raped her and butt raped her. Yeah. yeah. Awful. All right. We're going to tell you, look, and this one's disturbing. So prepare yourself, but we're going to tell you about Andrew Lee Jones. And he was executed by electrocution on July 22nd of 91. Uh, tell you about the crime on February 17th, 1984, 11 year old Tamika Jackson was living with her mother and grandparents in the Scotlandville section of Baton Rouge. Tell them about Scotlandville. Will. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I was just going to tell you, I'm about to do a full blown episode. I have all the research and everything on this case. And it is bad. Yeah. At Scotlandville y'all, uh, it's in North Baton Rouge, almost to Baker, what they call Baker, Louisiana, which is a really Baton Rouge just runs in the Baker's all still East Baton Rouge Parish. Bad, bad part of Baton Rouge. Yeah, and a lot of gang bad. activity yeah, in that area. Yeah, it used to be bad. way back yeah, in the day, a right. decent area. Decent, but decent area. Back in this time, it, it wasn't that bad. It, um, but this dude is that bad. And uh, again, mm-hmm. the, the real life real crime original episode, you're going to get all the details. We'll go ahead, Joe. There you go. So uh, at 4 a.m. on February 17th of 1984, the grandmother mother discovered that the child, the 11-year-old Tamika Jackson, was missing from her bedroom the police discovered that someone had broken the screen of the rear den window and had opened the back door in the muddy ground near the house police obtained a cast of an imprint made by a shoe from the pair from a pair of eight and a half size tennis shoes there were no signs of a struggle inside the house the investigation immediately focused on jones because of his stormy romantic relationship of several years with the victim's mother uh, it had been broken off the week prior to this incident. The victim knew Jones well, and he had been in the home many times. On the evening of the child's disappearance, Jones had called the mother's home three times and had told the grandmother he would not be responsible not, for his actions. Not going to be responsible if the mother continued to refuse to see him. About six thirty a.m., the police went to the apartment where Jones lived with his sister Terry Jones and his half brother Abraham Mingo. Jones told the police he had been home all night, and Mingo and Miss Jones confirmed the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few hours later, Miss Jones called police and said she may have been mistaken about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, after questioning her further, the police obtained a written consent to search the apartment. When no one answered the officer's knocks, Miss Jones used her key to open the door, and officers found Jones in the bathroom washing a pair of size eight and a half tennis shoes. Right. The bathtub was full of dirt and leaves. The officer seized the tennis shoes and a pair of green gloves and requested that Jones give him a statement. After signing a waiver, Jones gave the police a tape-recorded statement, which he denied any knowledge of the offense. I don't know nothing. And, you know, the lack of evidence, so they had to allow him to leave with his sister. But approximately 6 p.m., the victim's partially nude body was found in a drainage canal. In a ditch. An autopsy established the child had been beaten, raped, and manually strangled. The police again questioned Mingo. Uh, Although he initially told conflicting stories, he eventually gave a detailed account of his activities with the defendant on Friday night and Saturday morning. According to Mingo, he and Jones were out with the defendant on Friday evening, but dropped him off in Scotlandville. About 1 a.m., Mingo and Jones went to the Snowflake Lounge, but Jones left about 30 minutes later and Mingo returned to the apartment. Now, at some point between 4.30 and 5 a.m., Mingo was awakened by Jones. Uh, 
he knocked on the door, whereupon he let the defendant in and went back to bed. When Mingo and Jones were alone in the apartment later that morning, the defendant told him he should have stayed home and that he did something he didn't want to do and that he done fucked up. Jones gave Mingo a TGMY bag and asked him to throw it away, which he did without looking inside. At Mingo's direction, police recovered the TGMY bag from a dumpster near a grocery store. The bag contained socks, a pair of blue jeans, and a pink sweatshirt, which were wet, muddy, and stained. Of course, they uh, put some analysis on that and identified the stain as a mixture of blood and semen, semen fluid. Nice, four, four DNA. Mingo also told the police about a pair of boxer shorts that he had found in the bathroom of the apartment. The shorts belonged to Mingo, but Jones had worn them that Friday night. Pursuant to Mingo's written consent, the police recovered a pair of stained brown and white boxer shorts. Analysis confirmed the presence of blood and semen fluid on the boxer shorts. On the basis of this information, they finally got a warrant. They arrested Jones, uh, and he Jones gave a videotaped statement in which he asserted that he and Rudolph Springer had gone to the victim's house on Saturday morning to commit a burglary. They were scared of being recognized, so Jones remained in the car while Springer entered the house. When Springer returned carrying the victim, Jones got in the back seat and pulled his cap over his face. Uh, After a few minutes, Springer drove Jones to his apartment. That was the last time the defendant saw the victim. That was his story that him buy it yeah and eventually he gets sentenced uh to death so he was executed on july 22nd 1991 uh by electric chair while he did not make a final statement at a pardon board uh hearing three days before he was executed he said there's a possible chance i did it a possible chance i didn't do it Mm -hmm. if i had not been drunk Nothing like that would have happened. I'm like anybody else. I don't want to die or anything like that. So that was his right. his statement after that. And, uh, and you know, I hate it when it involves children. Yeah, it's disgusting. I, I actually have um, some more in depth knowledge on that case. I'm going to bring it to you on on our original RRC episode oh, in the future. Very good. And he is a real piece of shit. And I know. Uh, of Mingo personally, and I'll explain all that. Um, let's so look forward to, to that, folks. right? Let's take to the next one, John Brogdon. Ugh. Um, oh, this is gonna be the facts of the case. On the evening of October 7th, 1981, Rebetta Brown and her 11 year old sister Barbara Joe walked to a convenience store near their home in Luland, Louisiana. And y'all, that is in St. Charles Parish, again, down there, uh, in the Laplace area, and all that. Kind of outside New Orleans, but across the swamp. Uh, so they walked to use the telephone. 19-year-old Brogdon and his 17-year-old friend, Bruce Parrott, arrived at the store while Rubetta was on the phone. Parrott approached Barbara Joe and put his arm around her. Rubetta called her sister away, and the two left. On the way home, Barbara Joe asked her sister if she could visit a neighbor's home for a few minutes. Rubetta allowed her sister to leave her to do so, and Rebetta went to the neighbor's house about 10 minutes later to pick up Barbara Joe. Barbara Joe wasn't there, and after a short search in the neighborhood, Rebetta informed her mother that Barbara Joe was missing, and they called the sheriff's office. After that, a friend of Barbara Joe's came forward to say that he had seen Barbara Joe earlier that evening in a car seated between Brogdon and Parrott. Two men discovered Barbara Joe's body later that evening behind a levee. And again, y'all, levees are how 
high dirt walls, usually dirt, uh, sometimes cement, uh, hold back the, the rivers and the, and the water. But anyway, they saw them behind the levee in Lillian. Look, you got no fucking business being behind a levee, period. Yeah, right? especially in Lillian. Right. And, uh, and Paris' car was found parked a short distance away. Two other men later informed authorities they had seen Rogman Parrot walk on the road near this levee. Rogman was without a shirt and appeared disheveled. Rogman and Parrot were arrested that evening at Rogman's home on the suspicion of Robert Joe's murder. After being informed of his Miranda rights at the sheriff's office, Rogman waived his right to counsel and confessed to the murder and aggravated rape of Barbara Joe. In his statement, Rogman told how he and Parrot tortured and killed her. And instead of visiting the mother's home that night, Barbara Joe had returned to the convenience store and met Rogman and Parrot. The confession, well, that's their story, y'all. The confession admitted that after they picked her up at the convenience store, Brogdon and Perry drove her to the levee where her body was later found. They repeatedly raped her and forced her to perform oral sex on them. And all during the, these acts, they beat Barbara Jo with their fists. They also broke bottles on the cement and then stabbed her repeatedly with the edges. And Parrot also struck Barbara Jo in the head with a brick that he found laying nearby. And then Brogdon then beat her with the brick. The two also used pointed sticks to pierce her body. Brogdon and Parrot left the scene of the crime and Parrot's vehicle uh, when they when they heard another car approach and they hauled ass in Parrot's vehicle. Brogdon was convicted by St. Charles' jury of murder and aggravated rape and sentenced to death. So he was executed on July 30th, 1987. Rogan is co-defendant Bruce Parrott were convicted of rape and beating. We'll talk to you about, about all that. Um, Parrott received a license, y'all, because the jury deadlocked in the penalty phase. I don't know what fucking... Some juror. Idiot yeah. was on that jury. Brogdon made no formal final statement as he turned to see himself in the lecture chair. His last words were, God bless y'all. Mm, mm, mm. It's crazy, right? Horrible. We do some really uplifting stories. We've done some yeah. great, great shit. But sometimes you got to let it be known why. How the cow eats a cow. Right. That's, That's right. the worst fucking place in the world. Yeah. Right? And I mean, these people that are getting executed are not always angels. I mean, they did everything to that girl. Yeah. But, but poor Holy The blind woman. Right? I mean, that's just yeah, awful. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Thank y'all so much for supporting us. We hope y'all enjoyed this uh this episode and we've got a, a part three that we'll drop at some point yep. uh that you'll really like as well but we just thank y'all for yep. all you do for yep. us and definitely again share, patreon share. members i hope you're enjoying your commercial free early releases and all your bonus episodes and everything else and you want to be a patron member you can, um go to patreon.com type in bloody angola yep and, and it'll pull pull it right pull it up, or in social media, follow us on um, on Facebook, and look for uh, bloody angle announcements and everything real life for crime, including the real life for crime app, and follow our other show, Real Life Real Crime Daily, where me and Absolutely. Jim and Mike Agravino, original real life real crimes like the one I'm gonna tell you about uh, with Mingo involved in it. It drops on Tuesdays as of now, y'all. So until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Everton. Your host of Bloody Angola. A podcast 142 years in the making. A complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. Peace.
credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.